welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Andrea Pride. Sadly, this will be my last IFRS Talks podcast as I'm leaving PwC for Pastures New. However, the good news is that I'll be passing on the baton and you will hear a new host in the next episode. And with that, I'm very pleased that my final guest is Karsten Gansauger, here to tell us all about the developments at the IFRS Interpretations Committee meeting on the 15th and 16th of March. So welcome back, Karsten. Thanks, Andrea. I'm glad to be back. It's been a real pleasure doing these podcasts with you. So thanks for all your contributions to these podcasts and all the best for your new role. Thank you, Karsten. So the committee had four new topics for initial consideration. The first new topic was around when to recognize the profit from a particular type of life insurance contract. Then there was also a submission around the accounting for rent concessions. And finally, there were two new questions on special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs. The committee also considered the comment letters on its previously issued tentative agenda decision on demand deposits with restrictions on use. So this was quite a full agenda and to, in the interests of time, we're going to leave aside the two questions on the SPACs for a separate podcast to be coming shortly. So could we start with the follow-up from the previously issued tentative agenda decision on demand posits with restrictions on use? And at this meeting, the committee decided to finalise its tentative agenda decision. And we've discussed this previously in another podcast, which we'll provide a link to in the in the talking points. But could you remind us about what the issue is, please, Karsten? Sure. So, so this submission is addressing effect better when entity holds a demand deposit whose terms do not impose any access restrictions for the entity. However, the entity has entered into a separate contract with a third party, which requires the entity to keep a specified amount of cash in that separate demand deposit and to use the cash in that demand deposit only for specified purposes. So an example where this may happen in practice is when entity sells a business to a third party and say the sale agreement requires the entity to keep a specified amount of cash in a separate demand deposit to indemnify the buyer for potential future warranty claims. So the question that was raised is whether that third party contractual restriction on use of the cash in the demand deposit means that the entity should no longer include the demand deposit as a component of cash and cash equivalent in its statement of cash flows and its, and its statements of financial position. Now, the committee tentatively concluded at the September IFRIC meeting that restrictions on use of a demand deposit arising from a contract with a third party do not result in the deposit no longer being cash. And so the entity would include the demand deposit as part of its cash in its statement of cash flow and its statement of financial position. In addition, and quite importantly, the tentative agenda decision or TAD also included some further guidance around presentation of those amounts in the statement of financial position and also highlighted applicable disclosure requirements in that regard. So the tentative agenda decision went out for comment and what did the comment letters say? Well, we received 17 comment letters and only a few respondents disagreed with the committee, whilst you know most of the respondents agreed or at least did not disagree with the committee's technical analysis. So overall support in terms of the technical analysis. However, even of those respondents that did agree, 
with the committee's technical analysis. Some expressed concerns about the outcome of the tentative agenda decision or that. So these concerns included that the classification as cash would not necessarily provide useful information to users and may potentially re result in inconsistent application outcomes between demand deposits and other items that would otherwise meet the definition of cash equivalence. Okay, and how did the committee respond to those concerns? Well, so, so even though some committee members acknowledged some of the concerns raised from respondents about the outcome, there was broad support from committee members with regards to the staff's technical analysis in terms of the requirements and IFRS standards. So therefore, the committee agreed to finalize the agenda decision as recommended by the staff with only a few relatively minor amendments to the wording of the agenda decision. Now, per perhaps I can add some personal observations. I think the discussion at the committee in this regard has demonstrated an interesting point, which is that entities would need to distinguish clearly between cash on the one hand and cash equivalence on the other hand. Now, my sense is that people you know, intuitively tend to think about cash and cash equivalence is something that is quite similar. Also, you know, people tend to think of cash as something that can be used flexibly and that is held, or at least can, can be used for the purpose of meeting short-term cash commitments. However, this latter point is actually something that IS-7 refers to in the context of cash equivalence, and it's not part of the definition of cash in IS-7. And exactly for that reason, it seems quite important to clearly differentiate between cash and cash equivalence. So, so my sense is that some of the respondents and also some of the committee members, including myself, felt that the outcome is maybe not what people would think intuitively. And certainly my personal view is that, you know, some standard setting might be helpful at some point in order to more closely align the definition of cash and cash equivalence. However, that would obviously be something the board would need to consider as part of a possible standard setting rather than something that the committee could address. Okay, thank you, Carson. And I saw that the cash flow statement itself was something that was a high priority in the recent agenda consultation. So maybe there's an opportunity around that. Yeah. Um, and also, as a reminder, uh, the agenda decisions that the committee votes to finalise are preliminary, uh, subject to board approval, and the official IFRIC update will be available after that permission has been obtained. So let's turn now to the new topics. And as I mentioned at the beginning, um, we're going to talk about two of the tentative agenda decisions that the committee decided to issue. The first was on the quantity of benefits provided under a group of annuity contracts. This discussion followed the, the education session last month in which the committee held an education session on the accounting requirements in IFRS 17 insurance contracts, in particular on the allocation of profit to profit and loss for insurance contracts. Which, which this topic is about. So could we first hear about the features of the transaction that was being discussed? Sure. So, so this submission is about a specific issue that is relevant in the insurance industry. I understand the fact pattern is pre prevalent in the UK and also appear to be common in a few other markets. So this fact pattern is about the accounting for a certain type of insurance contract, more specifically how to account for a group of immediate annuity contracts. Now, in, in these types of contracts, in simplified terms, the main features are that the policyholder pays an upfront pre premium without any right to cancel the contract or seek a refund. And in exchange for that, um, 
is entitled to a constant annual benefit starting from inception of the contract for as long as the policyholder lives. Also, for some simplicity, let's assume that the policyholder receives no other services un under the contract. That is, it is assumed that the only service is insurance coverage for survival. So this is obviously quite a simplified fact pattern reflecting the main conditions of a life contingent immediate annuity contract. In, in practice, fact patterns, fact patterns may include other conditions that an entity would need to analyze. For example, the annuity may be starting at a future date rather than immediately, and there may be other services involved, such as investment services provided by the entity. But for simplicity, this is just focusing on the simple fact pattern of an immediate annuity where the only service is insurance coverage for survival with no cancellation rights and no further services provided to the holder of the insurance contract. Okay, so the simplified fact pattern allows the focus on the specific accounting issue that is being addressed by the committee. Could you tell us about that accounting issue, please, Karsten? Well, in simple terms, the question that has been asked by the submitter is around the pattern of profit recognition by the insurance company. That is, when to recognize the profit from the contract. So IFRS 17 is quite a complex standard and we don't have time to, you know, to deep dive into the standard, but let me maybe start by reminding folks in simplified terms how a group of insurance contract is measured under IFRS 17. So on a high level, IFRS 17 essentially requires an entity to measure a group of insurance contracts based on three components. First, estimates of future cash flows that present a current present value probability weighted estimate that is adjusted to reflect financial risk. Second, a risk adjustment for non-financial risk, including insurance risk. And third, the contractual service margin, which is the margin the insurer is charging for its services. It provides in addition to the compensation it requires for bearing risk. So essentially the profit margin charged in addition to the compensation for bearing financial and non-financial risk arising from an insurance contract. So the submission was essentially focused on this large last component, the contractual service margin. So could you tell us what the views of the committee were, please? So, so this is an issue that is quite specific to, to, to one industry and one particular type of product. So I'm not planning to go into any details of the discussion. Essentially, the submission presented two potential methods on when to recognize the profit. That is how to allocate the contractual service margin and ask whether both of these methods would be acceptable under IFRS 17. Now, for those listeners that are interested in more details, I, re I recommend to have a look at our in-transition guidance, which is available on PwC Viewpoint, where we provide more details on the submission and the tentative decisions of the committee. So, Andrea, maybe we can provide a link to that document in our talking points accompanying this podcast. Yes, certainly we'll provide a link to that in-transition document um, in the talking points um, and they're also available on the Viewpoint page by search if anyone wants to find them that way. So Carson, I'm conscious that in, uh, this is a new IFRS 17 issue on the agenda and there may be listeners who are following IFRS 17 but who are less familiar with the IFRIC process. I wondered if you could give us a flavour of what happens next on this issue. Yeah, sure. So, so as usual, after a TAT has been issued, there will be a comment period, which is normally 60 days. So folks who are interested can, can provide feedback to the committee on the, on the TAT. After that, the staff will analyze the comment letters received and bring an analysis of those comments back to the committee at a future meeting. 
So at that future meeting, the committee will then review the comment letters together with the staff analysis of those comment letters and decide whether to finalize the TED. Often the wording of the TED would, you know, would also be adjusted to reflect feedback received from the comment letters and to reflect the discussions of those comment letters at the committee meeting. So, so once the committee has agreed to finalize the agenda decision, the board will be consulted to ensure that they do not object to the agenda decision and that they are comfortable that the agenda decision does not change or add the to the requirements in IFRS. So once that has happened, the final agenda decision will be published and entities, entities will then need to determine you know, whether they may need to change their accounting as a result of that agenda decision. Thank you. Thank you for that, Carson. And I think the point you made that the this all has to take into um, the context of the interpretations committee so they can't change or add to the requirements of IFRS accounting standards is, is also important here. The other submission that I'd like to cover is on uh, rent concessions, specifically in the situation where the only change to the lease contract is the forgiveness by the lesser of amounts due from the lessee under the lease. So could you tell us about the fact pattern that the committee was asked to think about? Yeah, sure. So, so this was about a fact pattern where a lessor and a lessee agreed to a rent concession under which the lessor legally releases the lessee from its obligation to make specifically identified lease payments with no other changes to the terms of the lease. Now, in the submitted fact pattern, the lessor accounts for the lease as an operating lease and has recognized an operating lease receivable, whilst the lessee has not applied any practical expedience and so has recognized the right of use asset and the lease liability in accordance with IFRS 16. Now, the staff had prepared an example for the discussion. I think it's probably easiest to convey the issue using that example to illustrate. So, so let us have a look at the you know, following simple example from the staff paper. So LSR and LSC enter into a three-year lease contract for a retail store with monthly lease payments of 100. Let's assume nine months into the lease, the retail store closes for a period of time say to comply with government restrictions. The lessee makes the first nine lease payments as required by the contract, but does not make payments in the following months. Now, let's assume that one year into the lease, so at the end of month 12, the lessor grants the lessee a rent concession, legally releasing, releasing the lessee from its obligation to make lease payments for months 10 to 14. So for the past three months, as well as for the next two months. Therefore, at the date of granting the rent concession, so at the end of month 12, the lessor had recognized an operating lease receivable of 300, that is the lease payments for the last three months, and the lessee had recognized a lease liability representing the discounted amount of all unpaid lease payments for months 30, uh, 10 to 36. And what were the questions the committee were asked to consider? So the questions being asked relate to both the accounting by the lessor as well as the accounting by the lessee. So let's start with lessor accounting. Regarding lesser accounting, the submitter asks two questions. First, how to apply, you know, how the lessor applies the expected credit loss model in IFRS 9 to the operating lease receivable when the lessor expects to forgive payments due from the lessee under the lease, so before the rent concession is actually granted. And second, 
whether the lessor applies the derecognition requirements in IFRS 9 or the lease modification requirements in IFRS 16 in accounting for the rent concession. So those, were, those are the questions for the lessor. Regarding lessee accounting, the submitter asks one question, which is whether the lessee applies the derecognition requirements in IFRS 9 or the lease modification requirements in IFRS 16 in accounting for the rent concession. Okay, so let's go back to the first one. So before the rent concession is granted, how does the lesser apply the ECL model to the operating lease receivable? What the, the, the committee decide? So in this fact pattern, the lesser, the lesser applies the impairment requirements in IFRS 9 to the operating lease receivable in the period you know, before the rent concession is actually granted. So the lesser would consider whether and if so, when to grant the concession. The lesser estimates the expected credit losses on the operating lease receivable by measuring any credit loss to reflect all cash shortfalls. So based on IFRS 9 guidance on credit losses, these shortfalls are the difference between all contractual cash flows due to the lessor in accordance with the contract and all the cash flows the lessor expects to receive determined using reasonable and supportable information about past events, current conditions and forecasts of future economic conditions. So this is essentially taken from the definition of credit losses in IFRS 9. So based on this, the committee tentatively concluded that in the period before the rent concession is granted, the lesser measures, measures expected credit losses on the operating lease receivable in a way that reflects an unbiased and probability-weighted amount determined by evaluating a, a, a range of possible outcomes as required by IFRS 9 and considering its expectations of forgiving lease payments recognized as part of that receivable. So what does that mean? So in, in other words, expectations about potential future forgiveness would need to be considered in the ECA calculation. My understanding is that this, this would apply irrespective of the extent that the concession relates to the, to the lessee's credit risk. So for background, this topic has been debated for some time in practice. That is, whether an ECL would cover only those cash, for, only those cash shortfalls that relate to the debtor's credit risk, you know, as the letter C in ECL would seem to suggest, or whether it would co cover all cash shortfalls, irrespective of whether they are related to the debtor's credit risk, you know, as the definition of credit losses in IFRS 9 would seem to require. Now, the TED suggests that the latter is the case, so that all potential cash shortfalls, including those that are not credit related, would need to be considered in the ECL calculation. I think, you know, if this is finalized, this will, may potentially have some wider implications beyond just lesser accounting, as it would seem to affect any ECA calculation where a future price concession is considered a possible outcome. So might be might be relevant across all in industries and presumably be particularly relevant for entities, you know, with long-term financial assets such as banks. So after the rent concession is granted, what happens then from a lesser's point of view? Well, for that, I think it's necessary to distinguish between the amounts forgiven that, you know, that relate to a receivable that has already been recognized and those concessions that relate to future periods. So for those amounts that have already been recognized as a receivable, the derecognition guidance applies. And so in this fact pattern, since the lessor has 
legally release the lessee in relation to specifically identified lease payments, this means that the receivable representing those payments, as well as the related ECL provision, should be derecognized with any difference recognized as a loss in profit or loss. Now, for those amounts that relate to future periods and for which a receivable therefore has not yet been recognized, a lesser would recognize as income the lease payments to be made by the lessee over the remaining lease term. So in the example that I mentioned earlier, this would essentially mean that the 300 that has been recognized as a receivable for the past three months would be recognized as a loss at the date of the forgiveness, whilst the 200 that are forgiven for the next two months would reduce the amount of rent income to be recognized in the future over the term of the modified lease. Okay, so that's both from the lessor's point of view. What about the lessee's point of view? Well, regarding lessee accounting, as I mentioned, you know, this is around whether in accounting for the rent concession, the lessee applies the derecognition requirements in IFRS 9 or the lease modification requirements in IFRS 16. So on this point, the staff paper suggested that there are two potential approaches for the lessee. The first approach is that the lessee could apply the derecognition guidance in IFRS to the part of the lease liability that is extinguished and the modification guidance in accounting for the lease modification that is after having applied the derecognition requirements in IFRS 9 to the part of the lease liability extinguished. Such an approach would essentially result in, you know, in all of the amounts forgiven to be recognized in profit or loss. So in my example, both the past and the future lease payments would be derecognized with a resulting credit recorded as a gain from extinguishment in the income statement. So in my example, debit lease liability 500, credit gain 500. In addition, the staff paper suggested that the lessee would also update the lease liability with a new revised interest rate to reflect the requirements in the lease modification guidance with a corresponding adjustment to the right of use asset. Now, the second approach would be to just apply the modification guidance to the entire rent concession. And so the lessee would just remeasure the lease liability, taking into account the forgiveness of lease payments and also updating the applicable interest rate as required by the lease modification guidance. So under this approach, under the second approach, there would be no gain from, you know, no gain or loss from the concession. And instead, the decrease in the lease liability would be accompanied by a corresponding credit to the right of use asset. So just debit lease liability, credit right of use asset with no impact on P&L at the date of the modification. Okay, so what happens next? What will the committee do now? So for, for the lessor side, the committee decided to issue a TAD along the lines proposed in this staff paper. The committee will then discuss the matter at a future date based on the feedback received from comment letters. And, and for the lessee, the staff proposed and, and the committee agreed to refer the matter to the board for narrow scope standard setting via an annual improvement to reduce diversity in this area. So Carson, thank you once again for sharing your insights into the IFRS Interpretations Committee meetings. I've very much enjoyed chatting to you regularly to debrief these meetings, and I hope I'll be able to listen from the other side to you do the same with the next presenter. And finally, thank you to all our listeners of PwC IFRS Talks. It's been a pleasure being your host for the last two years. So for one last time, I wish you all the best. 
keep listening, stay safe, and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Thank you.